Good morning, church. You know, have you, have you ever been in one of those situations where you thought, I'm going to die? I, I, I am not going to make it through this event. How, how did you get through that? Well, you know, there was a guy uh, who had a, an event like that. His name was Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic runner, and during the 1940s Olympics, he was supposed to be that man who was the first person to run the mile less than four minutes. He was uh, an able runner. But World War II happened, canceled those games, and Louis Zamperini became a B-24 bombardier in the U.S. military. While on a search and rescue mission, his plane went down, uh, it crashed in the Pacific Ocean, killing eight men on board, leaving he and two others adrift on the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. They ran out of food. They ran out of drinkable water. They faced the blistering sun of, of the Pacific, the huge waves rolling in, angry sharks constantly at their their, their boat, being shot at by Japanese fighter pilots. One of the men died there at sea. And then on July 15th, those two survivors were picked up by Japanese soldiers. Were they saved? No, not remotely. Zamperini and his friend entered into the cruel prison of war camps. A third of POWs died in those camps. And for two years, Zamperini was forced to clean toilets, to shovel coal, and was beaten relentlessly by his captors. The harsh weather, the cold, or sorry, the harsh treatment, the cold weather, severe malnutrition and disease brought Zamperini to the edge of death. How was he able to survive? Well, Zamperini said, a part of you still believes you can fight and survive no matter what your mind knows. But it's, it's not strange. He said, where there's life, there is hope. What happens is up to God. After his rescue, Zamperini went into a deep depression. He nearly lost his marriage and everything he had. Then one night, he stumbled into a multi-day evangelistic event where he found the true source of unbroken hope. Evangelist Billy Graham was speaking that night and he said, God reaches into the world through miracles and promises to give men the strength to outlast their sorrows. Louis remembered that raft in the Pacific Ocean at that moment. In that desperate moment, adrift on the sea, he had whispered, if you save me, I will serve you forever. So that night, instead of running out the back of the tent, he stepped forward to accept Christ. Now, Zamperini's strength through suffering was indeed amazing, but it could not sustain him. Only the living hope he found later 
was able to carry him. And that's the hope that Peter is speaking about in our passage, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, which, which Sia just read for us. Last week, we saw in the greeting that God has chosen us for salvation and obedience to Christ, to Christ as exiles in this world. We saw that our connection to Christ may in fact invite suffering. But as we concluded last week, our suffering has purpose. There is hope. And we see more of this hope from today's passage. My hope is that you will join me to praise God for salvation and rejoice greatly though you suffer. That's our main point today. Praise God for salvation and rejoice greatly though you suffer. Now, this passage divides easily into two parts. The first is about God and his work in verses 3 to 5, and there is our hope of salvation. The second is about us and our response, verses 6 to 9, and there we'll talk about our joy through genuine faith. Now, here in verse 3, Peter immediately launches into praise, saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise does belong to God from, from those whom he has elected. It's by his own purpose and pleasure that he has brought us into this covenant of blood and obedience to Jesus that we talked about last week. Humanity, you see, has turned from God in sin and rebellion. The whole world actually deserves condemnation in God's wrath, and, and they deserve death. Truly, if God doesn't reach out to save some, then none of us would have hope. But God chose his elect, though they have nothing to offer in return. We Friends, we have nothing to give to God. And that's why we owe everything to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus for saving us. So in this first section, three to five, Peter goes straight to our hope of salvation, highlighting what I want to show is four aspects of salvation. First, that salvation begins in God's mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is treating someone with compassion when you have the power to punish or harm them. The, the root word for mercy has this understanding that a, a price is paid. To show mercy, to have such compassion and love requires on our part humility or on the part of the person giving mercy, often mercy is costly. Consider the king in Jesus's parable in Matthew 18. There, the king shows mercy to a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Now, let me give you an idea of how much that is. Each bag had the value of 20 years 
of an average day laborer's wages. 20 years. Now multiply that by 10,000 bags. I'll do the math for you. It comes up to about a billion dollars. That's a big debt. And this guy couldn't pay it. Jesus says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he have be, be uh, sold to repay the debt. And at that moment, the servant fell on his knees before him and he says, be patient with me. He's begging and I will pay back everything. The servant's master had mercy on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, can you imagine the man's joy when he hears this from his master? It's like a new life. He's free from a debt that's far beyond his ability to to pay back. His wife and kids are saved from a debtor's prison. But you know that debt did not disappear. The king had already paid it out. It was a debt. So the king bore the cost himself. In a similar way, you see God in his great mercy has paid our price. And he gives us that new life. That new life is the second aspect of salvation that Peter highlights here. He says in in this new birth, that, that this new birth is given in God's great mercy and it is into, it's into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And verse four, it's into an inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. Now, let's, let's talk about what this new birth means. Uh, firstly, the Apostle John, he, he also speaks of this new birth in, in John 1. If you, if you look there with us at this, John 1, verses 11 to 13, he says, He came to that which was his own. This is Jesus. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then then later in chapter 3, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He explains that in the further into the passage as being born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Now, John says this new birth is required for us to see God, to see his kingdom. So, so how, how then does this new birth happen? What does John say? Someone is born again by God's Spirit when they receive Jesus, when they believe the good news about Jesus. And that good news is that Jesus, who is fully God, entered creation. He became fully human 
and live the, perf- the, life, the perfect life that we were called to live, but we couldn't. He died the death that we deserved, and he then rose again, guaranteeing our salvation. He died that death for our sin. That is the price that was paid. Have you believed this? Have you received his mercy? Has your life changed as one who has been born again? Born again, a new life. If not, then then look, there are many here who would love to help you understand this good news. So don't, if you don't know this Jesus in a way that you have a new life, then don't leave today without asking me or one of the members here to help you know God's grace and receive his mercy in Jesus. Now, if you have been given new birth, then friends, Peter wrote this letter for you. He wrote it with you in mind. Now, he's writing it to scattered exiles in his day, but we are also those scattered exiles. The new birth is our hope of salvation. Because in the new birth, you see, we're saved. We're, we, we have been saved, our past tense. We are being saved in our present reality, our present tense. And as we see here in the passage, we will be saved in this coming salvation when Jesus comes again in a future tense We have been saved. We are saved. We will be saved. And Peter, in the midst of that knowledge, Peter is pushing these elect exiles not to think about the past, but actually about the future sense of their salvation. It's their future hope that Peter is pushing us to consider. He's putting their attention forward to heaven rather than, did you notice he didn't talk about the cross? You see, Peter knows that these elect exiles are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And pastorally, you see, pastorally, he is helping to see, helping them to see that their suffering has purpose. There's a goal for our suffering. The the new birth has this future look first into a living hope, which, which Peter's connecting to the resurrection. It's resurrection. Resurrection is life. Resurrection is victory. Resurrection marked the end of suffering for Jesus and the beginning of his return to the Father. Now consider how Jesus endured the cross from Hebrews chapter 12, right? He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Think about that as you're suffering. Oh, for we who believe in him, Joining with him in resurrection means we have hope that we will leave this world of sin and suffering, that we will enter our promised land. 
as Brother Oliver said. And then the second, the second thing that he shows us about this new birth, it's also a forward look into a secure inheritance. Now, some of you have been here a while. Last year, we looked at the life of Abraham. You remember Abraham, God had promised him offspring and an inheritance, the promised land. Abraham believed God and God credited that faith as righteousness for him. Now, remember, Abraham had no more than a well in that land. But as Hebrews 11 tells us, Hebrews 11 uh, verses 13 and 16, it's, it says they did not receive the things that were promised. They only saw them from a distance or saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Faith. For believers in Jesus, we too are, are waiting for an inheritance. But like Abraham, this, the inheritance that we're waiting for is more real than the temporal material blessings that are around us. It's, it's a reward far better than an earthly land and a far lasting reward. Peter describes our inheritance here as one that can never perish Never spoil, never fade. You know, it doesn't get old or outdated like your phone. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't spoil like old bread. It doesn't fade like a carpet in the sun. No, brothers, sisters, whatever this inheritance in Christ will be like, it is eternal. It is permanent. It will never grow old. It will never become dull. Heaven will not be boring. Now, friends, consider the mountains. Consider the stars, the amazing plants and animals in which we live around us here. The Bible says that God created all of this in six days, right? Now, whether it's a literal six days or not, I don't think it really matters. But Jesus has been preparing a home for us for 2,000 years. Now, Keith Green, a Christian musician back in the 70s and 80s, he said it this way, if it took God six days to create all this, and that home is taking 2,000 years, hey man, living here is like living in a garbage can compared to what our inheritance is going to be like. Even heaven itself, though, friends, is it's going to be nothing if God's not there. Heaven itself will be nothing if God's not there. The more, the more we know about God, the more we realize that He is what our hearts long for. He's more than any inheritance. And believer, believer, we have the joy of knowing him now. We have that joy now as God's elect exiles consider this living hope. 
in your salvation. This is not the end for you, right? This world is not your home. So friends, live now fixing your eyes on Jesus. Set your gaze forward towards the future in resurrection and seeing him face to face. This, friend, is your living hope now. Brothers and sisters, you have that now, and you have an inheritance that is secure. I mean, think of it. Satan himself can destroy everything you have, but you have something that no one can touch. This secure inheritance gives us hope, even in the darkest of times. Now, Peter's third aspect of salvation there in verse 5, he says that we are shielded by God's power. Now, we, we may suffer many trials. He talks about that in the next verse. But through faith, he says, we are protected by God. But remember, uh, actually, our, it is our union with Christ that may be the cause of many of our trials. So what's going on there? Is God protecting us from things or are we, is he pushing us into things because of our connection with him? God's protection does not mean that he will remove trials from us or even take us out of them. Consider Paul's description of his trials in 2 Corinthians 11. He, he says there, I'm going to summarize some of this, 2 Corinthians 11. He says he was in prison. He was severely flogged. He was exposed to death Again and again, five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was pelted with stones. They, they threw stones at him. Three times shipwrecked. He was in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. He labored and toiled. He often went without sleep. He was hungry and thirsty. He was often cold and naked. And besides all that, he says... I faced daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Being shielded by God's power doesn't even mean that if you pray more, even pray with great faith, that somehow God will deliver you from trials. No, I mean, if we go on in chapter 12 of First or 2 Corinthians, Paul describes how he pleaded with the Lord time and time and time again to take some messenger of Satan, is what he called it, that was tormenting him, to take it away. But God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, being shielded by God's power is more about God protecting your being than protecting your body. As God's child, your eternal position with God is fixed in Christ. You are in Christ if you are born again. And he will give you grace to face whatever his sovereign designs bring in this finite earthly life. I mean, think about it. I mean, could any of us face the suffering that Paul went through on on our own strength? No, no way. Uh, But God gave grace to him in his time of need. Church, if life gets hard, or maybe I should even say when life gets hard, even if that means you're suffering for your faith, don't be discouraged. But rejoice. Rejoice. Acts 5.41 records the early church facing persecution, and it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Church, can we rejoice as they did if we must face similar persecution? I think we can. I think we can with God's grace and with the presence and power of his spirit among us. We can rejoice. And Peter will say this later in in verse 13, but I want to bring it here now as as an application. He says, with minds that are alert, alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Friends, church, believers, let's set our hope now on God's mercy. Let's remember now that we are shielded by God's power, that he's given new birth in great mercy, and that we have this living hope and an inheritance that's kept for us in heaven so that we can endure all things until we see him face to face together. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is coming and therefore we can rejoice. That's the fourth, the fourth aspect that Peter mentions here. Salvation is coming. Our salvation, he says, is ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, this last time, it speaks of the day when Christ will return and he will bring us home to our heavenly inheritance, that secure inheritance. Salvation, then, is the promise that believers have set all their hope upon. That that promise is, we can set our hope on that because that promise is secure on the fact of Jesus' resurrection. The fact 
of Jesus' resurrection. You see, if the Jews who killed Jesus wanted to completely crush his influence and end Christianity before it even happened, all they had to do was simply produce the body. That's all they had to do. They knew where the tomb was. They had set the seal on the stone that covered the entrance. They had soldiers guarding the tomb. But what happened, friends? On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. It's the thing that Peter proclaims at the resurrection. He proclaims this resurrection at Pentecost. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of it. And then he preaches later to the crowds. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of it. And later he testifies before the religious leaders who who, who gathered them to put them in prison. He says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And he said, there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Believers, the resurrection is the authentication that God's promise is true. He will finish what he has started in salvation. Your salvation is here and it is coming. And so then rejoice, brothers and sisters. Rejoicing is the right and proper response to this hope of salvation that we have. So let's consider now in the second section, verses six to nine, our joy through genuine faith. Verses six and seven says it. Let me read it again. In all this, all this that we've just talked about, right? That Peter has just talked about. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, Jesus came. And God reveals his grace and mercy through his death and resurrection. And through faith, we're given that right to be called children of God. And in this new birth, we have this living hope. We have this inheritance. And we will take part in a final joy of God's glory and his coming salvation at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, in all of that, we are enabled to greatly rejoice. There's a reason why it has been said that Christians are the happiest people on earth. That's the reason, friends. Our rejoicing in future grace, though, may be muted. It may be diminished somehow by our present sufferings. It's true. But even suffering can lead us to rejoicing if we have the right perspective. Like the church in Acts chapter 5. 
You see, Jesus promised persecution. It, it's, it's not, it should not be a mystery to us that persecution comes. And, and then he also encourages us to rejoice in that. In, in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, this is the, the Beatitudes. Uh, he says, blessed are you. Blessed when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Do you feel blessed when that happens? Jesus says you are. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Yes, because you're connected to Jesus. You see, trials for the Christian have a purpose. P- Peter, Peter says that, right? Trials have a purpose to prove the genuineness of our faith. And, he, and Peter uses this, this process of refine, refining gold as an example. How do you prove that gold is genuine? You throw it in the fire. How do you prove that your faith is genuine? Put it in the fire of trial and you will see. I think Peter describes trials in this way so that we can have hope. First, he says, first thing, look there. He says there in verse six, he says they're short. <laughs> they're, they're short sufferings. Most trials are, are like that. They're temporary. Paul, Paul even describes them as light and momentary. Think about that list. Light and momentary? But even if those sufferings are to last your entire physical lifetime, they're only a little while compared to the eternity that you have in Christ. Light, friends, momentary compared to eternity. Secondly, he says that there are all kinds of trials. Now, he, he, he says here we, we may have trials. And then he says there are all kinds of trials. Now, some may have more trials. Some may have less trials. Comparing our trials with one another, that's not the point. <laughs> that, will, that will not bring you joy when you start comparing your trials with one another. I've suffered so much more than you. No, don't do that, friends. The point is genuine faith to endure with peace and even joy. And and as Christians then, to help one another through our trials, you know, to, to, to each one bear his own burden, but then as Galatians 6, 2 says, to bear one another's burdens as we're able Though, though trials happen, and they happen because of, of sin in this world, it's all under God's sovereign hand. It hasn't escaped God's thoughts. No trial, no temptation has come to you 
that's uncommon to humanity. But with the trial, with the temptation, the scripture says God provides a way to endure through it. Now, thirdly, there's a reward if we do endure in our trials. Peter mentions this praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. You see that at the uh, end of chapter 7. It, it's, think of it this way. It's that reward of the master that we all long to hear when we, we get to life's finish line. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what I want on my tombstone. I don't know about you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Trials. Trials would, would seek to press Christians to lose their hope, to leave the faith. But when we have our eyes fixed on our living hope, on our coming salvation, these trials then actually become like the, the stretch of a bow that launches an arrow to its target. Our trials become like that stretching. And without that stretch, there would be no launch. Believer, trials will stretch you, but they can also launch you towards your goal of a proven, genuine faith. And that proof is for yourself. That proof is, is for others, but mostly it's a proving of your faith before your master and savior. He loves you and he sees you. And isn't that interesting? This thought that God sees us, even though we have not seen him. We have, you see, this unseeing faith. And Peter's encouraging the believers here. He, these elect exiles have a faith that's not like his. It's not like Peter's faith in this way. Peter heard Jesus preach. Peter saw him with his own eyes. He touched him with his own hands. But these believers, they have not seen Jesus. We and they are like those that Jesus speaks about at the end of the Gospel of John. He, he's talking to Thomas who had doubted the resurrection. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, church. Such blessing leads us now to what Peter describes as being filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Oh, oh believer, you have not seen him, but are you filled with joy because of him? Despite your current struggles, sufferings, and trials, are you rejoicing because of who he is and what he's done for you and how he came near to you and has called you by name and put your hope in his sure promise that one day 
you will rise with him in glory. Are you rejoicing, believer? Where are your eyes? Where is your focus? Well, Peter would encourage you to look to the future, to look to the end, the result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's what he says there in the last part of verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, it's our focus on Christ rather than on our circumstances or even even our doctrine that we find that level of joy. Now, now some Christians think that verse 9 is about evangelism. Uh, You know, they, they say the end result of my faith is that I can pray for the salvation of other souls. But I, I think it's clear as the NIV translates it here that Peter's focus throughout this whole passage is their reward. The inheritance for you, your praise and honor and the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, our hope of salvation leads us to great joy through genuine faith. As as Louis Zamperini reflected on how he was able to endure that suffering, he said, where there is life, there's hope. What happens is up to God. That's a good phrase to hold on to, isn't it? But our hope, like Zamperini's eventually would be, is not in this life. The the hope we have is strong because its source is beyond this life. If God is not the source of our hope, then, then our hope is just a wishful thinking. The foundation of our hope is God and his word. through which he promises us. Our hope is found in the unshakable, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present, one true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, friends, we can praise God and rejoice greatly, though we suffer, because our hope is in this salvation that he brings. Friends, let's take a moment just to pause and reflect on this hope of salvation. And I I hope that it will lead you to great rejoicing. Let's just think about that for a moment and then I'll close in prayer. Praise be to you, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because in all these things, we can greatly rejoice Even though we've not seen him, we love him. Even though we do not see him now, we believe in him. And Lord, it leads us to this inexpressible and glorious joy. For we are receiving now the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Because it's in his resurrection that we find this hope. And it's in his name that we believe and pray. Amen.